From Washington, this is CQ on Congress, the nonpartisan source for in-depth analysis of Capitol Hill's policy debates. I am Sean Zeller. It's going to be a very fair process. It's going to be very fair to other countries, especially those that treat us well. We've had a big week in foreign affairs. On March 8th, President Trump imposed tariffs on steel and aluminum imports, exempting, for now, Canada and Mexico, pending renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement. The same day, the White House announced that Trump had accepted an invitation from North Korean leader Kim Jong-un to negotiate face-to-face over North Korea's nuclear program. My guests today are CQ Trade reporter Ellen Ferguson and John Donnelly of our foreign policy team. Hi, Ellen and John. Hello. Hello, how are you? All right, Ellen, let's talk about trade first. What's Trump's rationale for imposing these tariffs? The rationale is that the level of foreign steel and aluminum has risen to the point where the United States might be dependent on foreign-made steel and aluminum to fulfill military and defense needs, and that it also constitutes an economic uh, threat to domestic steel and aluminum uh, producers. The president, last year in April, signed two executive orders directing the Commerce Department to do an investigation, a review of uh, imports. And the Commerce Department recommended, concluded, that the imports of aluminum and steel did constitute a threat to national security and economic security, sent some recommendations to the president. The president um, accepted uh, the uh, proposal on uh, global-wide tariffs. He increased them, actually. So based on that commerce report, is there a legitimate national security concern about our steel manufacturing? Congress has delegated a lot of power to the president over the years. to conduct trade. And one of the laws allows the president to determine what constitutes national security. And it's not clearly defined, um, but it is one of those areas where within the United States and actually globally, countries are loath to challenge each other on that because what I consider to be national security, you might not consider to be national security, but it's a sovereignty issue. So the Commerce uh, Department, the Commerce Secretary, says that their definition, which has been expanded to include economic security, is legitimate. The question is whether uh, countries that are affected by the the tariffs will challenge that interpretation at the World Trade Organization and whether they'll win. Again, national security is one of those exemptions that has been carved out where countries are pretty much left on their own to determine what should be protected. But the way in which the president arrived at determining setting the tariffs rates, I think, has raised a lot of questions and will probably be challenged. Right. National security, we're talking about, could we get enough steel if we were involved in a, in a war to meet our needs? Um, and my understanding is that most of our steel that we import comes from allies. We're not talking about countries we'd likely to be at war with. Domestic production meets about 70 percent of our demand. The other 30% comes from imports. And among those who are the largest sources of imports, Canada is the top source of uh, steel and aluminum imports. They are considered friendly allies. However, I think what the administration is trying to get at beyond that is it has raised concerns, and the president has mentioned this repeatedly, 
about transshipments. And essentially, China, which has been recognized by most of the industrialized world as an overproducer of steel and aluminum, sending um, their uh, steel and aluminum products to other countries, and then those being exported to the United States. And the reason they would be doing that is to avoid essentially a very th uh, thicket of penalties and duties that have been imposed by the United States in particular on various steel and aluminum products. So if it comes from another country, you evade that. So I think it's to put pressure on those countries that they believe are essentially acting as fronts for China. But our own Commerce Department, Donald Trump's own Commerce Department, estimates that Chinese, uh, the Chinese steel we import is only about 2 or 3% of our, our total, right? That's, that's in direct exports. And what is there any saying, evidence about the transit shipments? Yes. I mean, that, that, that there, Do they have an assessment of how, how much is transshipped? Transshipment is something that has been recognized and identified as a problem by a number of countries. The issue has been, how do you get at that? And the Trump administration has made that a primary goal. And as I said, it seems that these tariffs may be a sort of backdoor way of forcing other countries to address that. So what's going to be the effect on U.S. steel manufacturers? Well, for steel manufacturers, they're, they're happy. This would raise the price of, uh, of competition, of competing products from other countries, and uh, protect them from competition. Now, the, where the outcry has come is from what are so-called downstream users, those companies that are steel using, that rely to some degree perhaps on imported steel, or maybe who might be concerned about uh, domestic steel prices rising since they will be protected from competition from um, imported steel. Now, those um, companies have written letters and called on Congress to somehow act or intervene. American Beer Institute, I believe, calculated that the effect on them of steel tariffs would be a $347 million tax increase because they buy tons and tons and tons of it. So uh, that's where the outcry has come. That's what they make the cans out of. That's what they make the cans out of. All right. So President George W. Bush imposed tariffs on steel in 2002. Gives us kind of a history lesson on what happens. What, ha what did happen? Well, it's a little different. President Bush used was something more narrow. It's called the safeguard. First of all, the maximum number of years you can impose is four years. Um, what happened on the safeguard is countries challenged the safeguards at the World Trade or Organization and won. And President Bush wound up withdrawing it. The mechanism of going to WTO to challenge exists, but the kinds of tariffs that the president has imposed has you know, the protection of national security, it's open-ended, he can modify it, he can make it sh as long for as long as he wants or as short as he wants, on, he can exempt certain products. There's a lot more leeway under the particular tool that he has taken. So could we see suits at the World Trade Organization again? Yes, I, I think there probably will be. The European Union has been talking, I think, for most of this week about uh, potential targets of retaliation, U.S. products that they might go after. It's an eclectic sort of range from 
you know, peanut butter to industrial products. Yeah, that, that we, we think this is not in compliance with WTO, so we will go to WTO, possibly with some other friends. Uh, we will have to protect our industry with rebalancing measures, safeguards, and we are also preparing uh, among, with the member states a list of rebalancing measures that could possibly enter into force. We hope that will not be the case, of course, because nobody has an interest of escalating this situation, but we, if we have to do that, that is what we will do. So they could impose some retaliatory they, they could. Mexico has also raised the likelihood. Mexico has the blessing from WTO from a prior case that it won against the United States where it won the power to impose um, retaliatory tariffs. That they're saying, well, we might not need to go back to the WTO. We can just pull out our handy-dandy list that we had before. I think the concern with um, critics of the, the steel and the aluminum tariffs is that this is not a one-time deal. But investor worries aren't just about steel and aluminum. These tariffs could be the first shot in a trade war that the U.S. could easily lose. Because it is an issue that helped the president win the White House, that there will be further penalties, tariffs imposed on other goods, that will force other countries to retaliate. So then you wind up having sort of this expanding ripple effect where more and more industries kind of get caught into it. If it's a one-time thing, then you know some individual companies, some individual industries will benefit, and some will find themselves at a disadvantage. But if you have this multiplier effect, you have more and more and more people and industries being caught in it. Right, and Trump has already imposed tariffs on solar panels and on washing machines. Right. Okay, so this is causing an uproar on Capitol Hill, really. A lot of Republicans there are upset about it, say they fear it could lead to a global trade war. Can they do anything to stop it? Right now, there hasn't been, as far as I know, legislation that's been proposed. I think, you know, if they wanted to, they could probably do it with a policy rider and a spending bill where they deny funds to actually carry out the imposition of the tariffs or the collection of the tariffs. The stumbling block for all of this is that whatever they approved or passed would have to go to the president for signature. So if they And also a lot of Democrats uh, support the tariffs. They do. I think it would put some Democrats on the spot because some of the responses I saw sort of seemed to be, be playing both sides of the street where they're chiding the president for being late and imposing it, but then saying we need to provide, we as members of Congress need to provide more guidance on this. Um, I think the, the big challenge on whatever they would do is would they have a veto-proof majority? Because in the end, the president would probably have to sign almost anything that they, they passed. Okay, Alan. So the tariffs are not going into effect immediately. They go into effect in two weeks. And Trump said he's going to give countries a chance to ask for an exemption. What, what's going to happen there? They didn't really provide any kind of guidelines. I think if I were going in as a country, if I could uh, talk to them a little bit about U.S. trade deficits, because that is a big concern of this administration, if I could talk to them about ways I am trying to keep out um, imports of steel or aluminum that appear to be an effort to evade U.S. Um, penalties, or talk about ways that I am going to start cracking down on what I think are exports designed to evade penalties. If I could also discuss as a, a country coming in, uh, if I'm a member of NATO or some of the defense packs, 
how I'm paying more of my fair share of defense costs, which is, again is another thing that the president mentioned when he signed the steel and, uh, and aluminum tariffs. You know, there are, are um, quite a few issues that are on the president's trade list. Uh, he has repeated his concerns over the past year and while he campaigned. So if I were a country going in, I'd probably hit one of those, those items that I know that the president has been most concerned about. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un said he is committed to denuclearization and he expressed his eagerness to meet President Trump as soon as possible. President Trump said he would meet Kim Jong-un. Okay, John, I'm going to turn to you. President Trump agreed yesterday to meet with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. He'd be the first U.S. president to ever meet a Korean leader. Why did he decide to do this? Well, the, uh, he's the first sitting U.S. president to meet with a sitting uh, uh, Korean president. There's a long history, but back in the 90s and in the, uh, into 2000, uh, Bill Clinton tried to reach an agreement. George W. Bush tried. Well, actually, he, he kind of said, forget about it. But then at the end of his administration, he made, a, he made an effort that fell apart. Obama uh, set a pretty hardcore uh, preconditions. And so that's a big reason why that never came, came to fruition. But my point is that uh, president after president has made the effort. Um, now, th that, now Trump deserves uh, credit, uh, undoubtedly, for uh, getting to this point. But it's not just about him. His tough talk uh, may have played a key role in this happening. But don't forget, you've got a government in South Korea, a dovish government, that has been pushing really hard to uh, to accommodate the North Koreans. And you've got a relatively new leader in North Korea, um, Kim Jong-un. So you really got three new three players here, all relatively new on the scene. And so the, uh, it's, it's, it's it, together uh, they have come to this uh, point. Okay, what do we know now about when and where the two leaders will meet? Well, uh, we don't know much. Uh, the, the, the North Koreans and the South Koreans are expected to have some talks in, I believe, uh, April. And then by the end of May, I think the timeline is, uh, last we heard, uh, uh, President Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un plan to meet where. We don't know yet. One would think that each side would want the other to come to them. Um, uh, so we'd be a guessing game to, to figure out where it might be. Could it be in South Korea? Could it be in China? That'd be an interesting lo location. Um, that's the first of a thousand questions that have to be answered. Right. The other one, of course, is what about the agenda for the talk? Yeah. If they meet by, uh, by the end of May in, in diplomatic terms, uh, that's the same as, uh, hours, basically hours away. In other words, it, it's hard for me to imagine that there will be much of anything hammered out at lower levels. They're just going to go into this and, and, the, and, and what we'll see is the start of something. And we'll see the start of a very, very long-term process. It took something like a decade uh, to uh, reach the agreement with Iran, okay? So there's no way they can, they can come up with much. But, you know, this is, this is a total wild card. No one knows for sure what's going to happen when two human beings, uh, rather unusual human beings, I would say, both of them, uh, meet and talk. 
you never know what's going to happen. Something very surprising could right, happen. Right, and they have the power to make a far-reaching agreement. Sure, but the pro- what, what, it's impossible for them to come up with any kind of detailed uh, agreement, I think, in, that, in this kind of time frame. What they might come up with is some broad strokes, some kind of general principles that then would be hammered out over a long period of time. But I'm not uh, convinced that uh, North Korea, even though they're going to talk about quote-unquote denuclearization, I think they're going, to, they're going to hold out pretty hard to hold on to at least some of their nukes. Right. Those are the issues at hand. The North Korea's nuclear program, the still the end of the Korean War, which is still not resolved, and the desire of the North Koreans, I would think, for security. They fear a U.S. attack. Yeah. Um, and there's something like 28,000 U.S. troops uh, in South Korea. They do exercises there all the time. Um, you know, uh, would, what would Kim Jong-un expect in return if he were to give up at least some or even all of his nuclear weapons? He would expect a heck of a lot. And so you, you, this is, these are high stakes, extremely complicated negotiations. And real quick, uh, North Korea also has a tremendous, frightening arsenal of chemical and biological weapons that people don't talk about very much. That better be a part of the conversation, too. Right. Okay. So North Korea's um, nuclear program, by all accounts, has been progressing. They have the bomb. They're getting closer to being able to deliver it to the United States to bomb us. Um, And yet Trump's gambit here is considered quite risky by a lot of people who've been involved in North Korea policy. Why is that? Well, first of all, um, he has, he's, he's giving Kim Jong-un a huge victory by simply meeting with him because it gives Kim Jong-un the appearance of being on the same level as the United States. And in a sense, he is. He is now a member of the nuclear club. And, uh, and, and that's just the reality. Um, and so it's risky to grant him that, uh, that, that status by, by talking with him. It's risky uh, to have high expectations that may not be met. I think this administration had better start tamping them down uh, every day between now and that meeting um, because, uh, you know, if it's considered to be a failure, who knows what the fallout could be. I think they have to really kind of have limited um, limited set of ambitions. But again, going back to the earlier point, they can only have ambitions so large because there isn't much time between now and then. John, President Trump is moving away from the agreement that his predecessor, Barack Obama, reached with Iran to get rid of its nuclear program. But might that agreement be a blueprint? He's getting ready to uh, uh, decertify it. Um, He hasn't formally done so yet, Uh, but he certainly criticizes it at every turn. It might be a blueprint, certainly in the sense that any kind of agreement on North Korea's part to uh, give up some or all of its nuclear weapons will require some kind of verification process and some kind of inspections. And how much of those will uh, will uh, Kim Jong-un agree to? Will we have a, uh, a, a recurrence of what we saw with Saddam Hussein, uh, with skepticism as to whether he was coming clean or deceiving inspectors? And uh, it may be deja vu all over again. Thank you, John. Thank you, Alan, for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. I am Sean Zeller. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One. And please rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at CQNow or at RollCall.